So I'd like you to imagine with me that you decide to take up kayaking. I, don't, I personally have never actually kayaked in my life, so I don't know anything about this, but for some reason this image came to mind as I was preparing. But I'm not talking about kind of a casual paddle up on Marsh Creek Lake. You want adventure. You want to be hardcore. All right? You ready? Okay. So what do you do? You start with your equipment. Now, obviously, you've got your basic equipment. You've got your kayak. You've got your paddle. You've got your helmet, your life vest. But you're not looking to be basic, remember? You're looking to be hardcore. So you've got all this other stuff. You've got your neoprene, waterproof clothing. You've got your, your whistle in case you get lost, I guess, your knife, your first aid kit, your canteen, your compass, your waterproof bags, your sleeping bag. You are decked out. You're ready to be a hardcore kayaker. So several thousand dollars later, probably, you load up all your stuff. You even got your cool roof rack on your car to load up your kayak. You've obviously done some research on where there's awesome class five rapids that you can go kayak. So you load up all your stuff in your car. You drive to the river. You unload your car. You suit up in all your gear. You set your kayak down on the bank. You get inside and you sit there. You stare at the, at the river, and after you're done, you pack everything up and you go home. That would be strange, wouldn't it? It's obviously a, a silly illustration. It would, be, it would be a strange and stupid thing to do. You would never actually experience what it means to kayak. What does that have to do with this passage? Paul seems to have a, a similar concern for us. He's concerned that it's possible for us to have everything we need to experience the supernaturally abundant life that we are offered in Jesus and never actually take advantage of it. We can have everything we need, but we don't actually use it. Specifically, we have received the Spirit of God. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit that empowered him to accomplish all that he did in his earthly ministry, the Spirit that performs miraculous signs and wonders through the early apostles and Christians, that same Spirit dwells in you if you've trusted in Christ. The question is, are we living in the full experience of that reality? What does it actually mean to walk by the Spirit. Now, let's just acknowledge, first of all, that the Spirit is confusing to us. When we think about the Trinity, and I don't, I don't think most of us think about the Trinity very often, but when we do, we kind of have a picture of God the Father. Like, even if it's a weird picture of, like, a guy up in heaven in the clouds with a big fluffy beard. We can imagine a father. Like there's a personal dimension to God the Father. There's certainly a personal dimension to God the Son because he was a real person who lived in first century Palestine. So we know generally what people in that time from that place look like. But God the Spirit is different. The Spirit seems impersonal. The Spirit seems nebulous and mystical. The Spirit is confusing. And I think the result is that We can acknowledge in general ways that the Spirit is with us. We can describe in some intellectual terms what the Spirit is supposed to do for us. But functionally, 
The Spirit is absent from our day-to-day experience. And I don't think this is what Paul is talking about here when he talks about walking with the Spirit, by the Spirit, in step with the Spirit. The term that he uses, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later in the message, in verse 25, literally means to keep in step. It's a, it's a military term, like soldiers marching in step. It's a regular, ongoing activity. It's constant. It's active. And the only alternative that we see here to walking by the Spirit is living in our flesh. So it's critically important that we understand what this life in the Spirit really means. I think Paul gives us three dimensions of what it means to walk in step with the Spirit. The first is the orientation of life in step with the Spirit. The second is the evidence of life in step with the Spirit. And finally, the habits of life in step with the Spirit. Let's look first at the orientation of life in step with the Spirit. This is verse 16 through 18. And what do I mean by orientation? When you orient something, you make sure that it's pointed in the right direction, right? When you go to uh, an orientation for college or for a new job, you get a, a lay of the land. You understand where things are and generally how things work. I think that's what Paul is doing in these first three verses. He wants to orient us to the landscape of our spiritually renewed hearts. And on the one side, we have the flesh. The flesh is what remains of our broken, sinful nature. It's opposed to God. It has an appetite that seeks gratification, satisfaction in the things of this world. It's clamoring for our attention. It ultimately leads us to destruction. But importantly, it does not any longer have ultimate control over us. We see this in Romans chapter 7, verses 5 through 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. That's our flesh. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. So on one side, we have our flesh. It's clamoring for our attention. It still wants to drag us back into the death that we left behind, but it does not have ultimate power over us. On the other side, we have the Spirit. God's Spirit. And the Spirit's role is to help us experience more of Jesus. We see this in John 14, 25, that Jesus says the the Spirit is going to come as our helper to experience, to remember, and to put into practice all that God has done for us in Jesus. The Spirit is the experiential mediator of our relationship with Jesus. Everything that we experience in the Christian life is made real in us through the work of the Spirit. Now, we could do a whole series on this topic, and it would be a great topic for study, for a study in your missional community to start, just look through the scriptures and start identifying what are the things that the Spirit actually does in our life? What, what are the things that the Spirit What's the role of the Spirit in our lives? And you'll start to see it everywhere. I'm just going to point out a couple. Adoption. 
We sang the song this morning, I'm a child of God. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. And what happens when we sing that song? There's something in us that resonates, doesn't it? There's something in us that says, yes, that's true. Thank you, God. Thank you that you made me your child. I'm a child of God. There's a place for me in the household of God because of what Jesus has done for me. What is that? Let's look at Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Romans 8, 15, Paul says, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That thing in us that resonates that, yes, this is true, I'm a child of God because of what Jesus has done for me, that's the spirit of God. What else? Justification and sanctification. These are the core uh, foundational truths that we believe about what Jesus has done for us. He's cleansed us from our sin, and he's presented us before God as righteous because of what he's done, and he is continually transforming us into his image. But how does that actually happen? Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the Spirit is making real in our experience the justification and sanctification that Jesus has made available to us. The work of the Spirit is to make real in us all that Jesus has done for us. So what I want us to see is that, there's, that we cannot disconnect our relationship with Jesus and our experience of walking in the Spirit. They're not two separate things. They're all one thing. And so my functional definition of what it means to walk by the Spirit is this. Walking by the Spirit is primarily about continually moving towards a deeper relationship with Jesus. And, as we've already seen, the only alternative to moving towards relationship with Jesus is moving towards our dead and dying flesh. There's no middle ground. There's no such thing as spiritually ambivalent desires and motivations. Every desire, motivation, and action in our lives is either moving us towards our flesh or moving us towards deeper intimacy with Christ through the Spirit. And I think this is really important for us to understand, this reality of our spiritually reformed, the the landscape of our spiritually reformed hearts is important for us to understand because the fact is that most of us spend most of our time totally unaware of, of the spiritual reality of the Christian life. We move through our days at school, in our jobs, in our parenting, in our relationships, in in our marriages, even at church, without any awareness, acknowledgement, or expectation of the Spirit's activity in us, on us, and through us. We think a lot about the things we have to do. We think about the things that we should do. We think about the things that we shouldn't do. 
But how often do we acknowledge the Spirit's presence in us? How often do we acknowledge our need for the Spirit to help us? How often are we aware of how the Spirit might want to lead us or redirect us or use us in someone's life? And how often do we wonder why our Christian lives lack joy and power and peace? We wonder why we don't experience the, the, the abundant life and power that we see described in the pages of Scripture. Paul wants to orient us to the reality of life in the Spirit. Either we are actively moving towards deeper relationship with Jesus, or we are passively drifting towards our flesh. There's no middle ground. And the way we know which direction we're moving in is by the fruit in our lives. So let's look at the evidence of life in step with the Spirit. This is verse 19 to 23. Now these are, uh, some of these are, are very familiar verses, especially the, the fruit of the Spirit. I think all of us, if you grew up in the church or went to Sunday school, you probably have a song that comes to mind that helped you remember and learn the, the fruit of the Spirit. I want to start with the, the, the works of the flesh. Not so many helpful songs about that. Gabe's got one. He'll share with you at the, at the end. What I want us to see here is that the works of the flesh are not primarily a list of wrong things that we shouldn't do. They are indicators of the orientation of our heart. Why does that matter? When we view the works of the flesh, or let's just call it, call it sin, when we view sin primarily as a list of things that we shouldn't do, rather than an indication of where we are going, it leads to two very consistent and predictable responses. The first is something that we all do. When there's something that we know we shouldn't do, we first define what that is. So sexual immorality, what does that actually mean? I guarantee you that each of you, even if you couldn't articulate it, has a definition for what sexual immorality is, and you put a boundary around that that says, if I stay on this side, I'm okay. If I cross over here, I'm not okay. So we define what that thing is. But from there, we go in two possible directions. Either we scooch up as close as possible to the line, maybe dip our toe over a little bit, grab a little taste. We get as close as we can trying to experience that thing without actually going into the territory that we would say is wrong. But over time, what happens? We carve out a little space over here that we get a little bit comfortable in. And then we carve out over here another space that we get a little bit more comfortable in. And, and over time, before too long, there is no boundary left. That's one response. The other response is that we take that thing and those boundaries that we initially drew and we start to draw our own boundaries a little bit further out, and then a little bit further out, and then a little bit further out. And we start to pride ourselves on how far away we are from the thing. And importantly, we judge other people based on how well they conform to the boundaries that we've drawn. When we define sin primarily in terms of things that we should and shouldn't do, we end up either with, with uh, legalism or licentiousness. To big word that just means we believe that freedom in Christ means we can do whatever we want. But what I want you to see is that they both have the same root. 
They're not two ends of a spectrum. They're two sides of the same coin. They're both the product of living out of our flesh. They are both opposed to life in the spirit. And Paul wants us to see that sin in any form to any degree is a warning sign that we are not moving towards Christ. We're moving towards our flesh. And friends, we need to hear this warning. If you've been a, a Christian for any amount of time, and maybe you're experiencing this now either personally or in relationships that you're in, you know people who started out well and have drifted. Sometimes with devastating results on themselves, their families, their marriages, their children. And unfortunately, we're often shocked when we hear of people falling into serious sin, adultery, abuse, addiction. But the reality is that the the movement that takes our hearts from something to, or nothing to something is the same movement that moves us from something to everything. It's the same movement. It's not about what we're doing, it's about where we're going. Sin is always an indicator that we are not walking in step with the Spirit, that we are drifting from relationship with Jesus, always. So if that's the problem, then the solution cannot and will not ever be to make more rules, to try harder, or to draw bigger boundaries around the thing that we keep turning back to. The only way to put to death the fleshiness that remains in us is more of Jesus. It's to move toward relationship and greater intimacy with Jesus through the Spirit. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that walking by the Spirit doesn't mean that we take seriously sin in our lives and that we deal seriously with sin in our lives. And we see this in verse 24. Paul says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There is a time and a place in our pursuit of Jesus for cut it off, gouge it out, violent action to take, tear out the roots of sin in our lives. But it's always, 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 always to get more of Jesus. The only way to put to death the remains of our sinful flesh is by moving into deeper relationship with Christ. Any other means or motivation is worthless, fruitless legalism. And the only way that we can enjoy the good gifts that God has given us, relationships and food and drink and sex and all of the amazing blessings that we have is in relationship with Jesus. Anything else is idolatry. I think this is why Paul frames this section with these two statements about the law. We see this, look at verse 18, just before the, the works of the flesh. He says, but... You are, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And then after describing the fruit of the Spirit, in verse 23, he says, against such things there is no law. What is he saying here? Remember back to, to chapter 3 of Galatians, where Paul says the law was our guardian until Christ came. 
The law is a restriction. The law is a fence. The law is a boundary. And when we're moving towards our flesh, the law says, don't go past this point or else there's grave danger over there. The law restricts us from moving towards our flesh. But when I'm moving towards Jesus, I don't need the law. The boundary's back there. I don't care about the boundary. I don't need anyone to tell me not to engage in sexual immorality or jealousy or drunkenness or envy or anger because all I want is Jesus. But the moment I turn back, the law's there. When we are moving towards Jesus, we don't need boundaries. But none of us are immune from drifting back towards the flesh. And so we need to be vigilant to evaluate the evidence and the fruit in our lives. And when we see the works of the flesh, what do we do? We repent. We turn back to Jesus. We talked a lot about the works of the flesh. And there's a lot more we could say about the, the fruit of the Spirit. First, I, I want to say, I, I want us to see that just like the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is not something that we do. It's the evidence of where we're moving. And the absence of that fruit is also evidence that we are not moving towards Christ. I also want to be sure that we're judging the right kind of fruit. Very often we're tempted to judge external success and achievement as signs of spiritual health. That's not what we see in the fruit of the Spirit. There's no fruit of the Spirit for having a big church. There's no fruit of the Spirit for having a nice house. There's no fruit of the Spirit for having nice Instagram. Success in jobs and career, having an outward appearance of being healthy and happy and even physically attractive, building a big church or successful public ministry, being an effective public speaker or preacher, The reality is you can do all of those things without any relationship to Jesus. So let's be careful not to be enamored with external achievement, but to judge ourselves and others rightly by the right measures of fruitfulness. Now before we move on to the habits of life and step with the Spirit, I want to talk for a minute about verse 23. I already referenced it. It's the end of the the works of the Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, against such things there is no law. What does that mean? I heard a story a few weeks ago when we were down at the Sojourn Leaders Summit about a church plant that uh, they had done in a difficult urban area. It was an area with a lot of poverty, a lot of needs, and also in the, the vicinity of the church was a newspaper that had a very kind of secular, anti-Christian leaning and agenda. And they were not happy that the church was in the neighborhood. So they were actually planning to write a story kind of explaining or or, uh, bashing the church and showing why they were uh, destructive and dangerous for the community. But as they interviewed the neighbors around the the church and in the community, they got a different story. See, what the, the church, when they planted, they had started out with a very intentional Uh, strategy of engaging with the community to find out what their needs were, similar to what David Mayenja shared a couple weeks ago that we're going to be doing here. And based on that, they started actually meeting people's needs. They found out that there was people were coming and dumping trash in in their neighborhood, in the alleyways, and so they started cleaning up trash. They started running a tutoring program for kids who needed help in school. They started running free medical clinics because a lot of the people in the community didn't have access to medical care. 
They, ran, they threw a, a free fall festival so that the community could come and enjoy. And when these reporters started engaging with people in the community, what they heard was, well, I don't necessarily agree with everything that they believe, but I can't deny they're making a difference. They're making our community better. See, the, this newspaper had tried to prosecute, they were trying to prosecute the church with the law of secular humanism or secular liberalism. The idea that the religion and Christianity are ignorant, bigoted, outdated, destructive forces in the community. But they found no offense with the fruit that the church had borne. Now, don't get me wrong, the gospel will cause offense. But the world will ultimately judge us by the fruit that we bear. It's why the world loves stories of high-profile Christians who fall into sin. It's proof to them that Christianity has no reality, no power, no relevance. The fruit of the Spirit demonstrates the reality of the gospel in terms that the world cannot deny. Friends, the world doesn't care if we stand up for truth on Facebook and Twitter, but live selfish, self-absorbed, consumeristic lives like everyone else. They don't care. As we move into deeper relationship with Jesus through the Spirit, our lives will reflect the fruit of supernatural gospel change. If they don't, it may be that we need to evaluate the direction we're going. Let's look finally at the habits of life in step with the Spirit. When I started thinking about this message uh, several months ago, I had a strong desire to make it practical. We've already discussed the, this idea of walking in the Spirit is, is confusing for us. I think it's, it's not, often not clear what it means. It seems mystical and, and, and strange. But I'm deeply persuaded that what Paul describes here in terms of walking in step with the Spirit is central and foundational to what it means to be a Christian. And I've been deeply burdened, as I already shared, that God wants to do something in us as we learn and understand what it means to walk in step with the Spirit. But as I've reflected on these passages over years, and, and not just this passage, but Romans and Ephesians and Colossians, where Paul talks about this over and over and over again, I've been perplexed at times and even frustrated by what seems like a lack of practical guidance. Like, what does this really mean, Paul? If this is something that's so important, as the scriptures say it is, why does it seem so nebulous and so mystical and so vague? The reality, though, is that I think it's not as complicated as we make it, or we think that it is. The analogy that Paul most often uses to describe our life in the Spirit is the analogy of walking. It's ongoing. It's, it's, it's ordinary. It's routine. It's habitual. Most of the time, we don't even think about it. Unless something happens to our bodies where we're not able to walk, we don't think about what it takes to move our, our legs from one place to, to the other. But there's actually two different terms that Paul uses here to describe uh, walking in the Spirit. The first one is a Greek term, peripateo. This is what we see in verse 16. This is the ordinary, everyday walking. But the second one I already mentioned is in verse 25. Stoikeo is the 
is the uh, Greek word here, and it's translated walking in step, depending on your, uh, your translation or even how new your translation. I actually saw in my ESV, I have an older ESV, and it describes it just as walking, but the newer version actually describes it as walking in step or keeping in step, and that's a better translation. It's a military term. It's the term that describes soldiers walking in line. And I was reminded as I was thinking about this and, and reflecting on this of my time in high school marching band. Now, for any of you who have experienced the ungodly torture that is marching band, some of you love marching band. I, that was not my experience. You know that you spend hours and hours, either in the blazing heat or the freezing cold. I don't know why it's only those two, but it's always just those two. You spend hours and hours First, just learning how to walk. Like you actually have to learn how to roll your feet and walk smoothly. You have to learn how big your steps are. You have to learn how to make turns. Then after you've mastered the basics, you learn the formations and you learn the routines and you learn how to do all of that with the cold piece of metal shoved in your face. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not over it yet. <laughs> it takes work. The point is it takes work it takes practice. It requires serious concentration and effort not to fall out of step with the people around you. And I think between these two terms, we start to get a picture of what it means in practice to walk by the Spirit. It's an ordinary, ongoing, daily experience. And it is an active, disciplined exercise of attention and focus. It's ordinary, but it's not passive. It's routine, but it requires effort. In the same way that if you, if you wandered out onto the field with the Penn State marching band, you would not accidentally fall in step with the routine that they've spent months perfecting. Now, some of you, when you hear me say words like discipline, exercise, effort, you either shut down because you don't want to hear another thing that you should be doing, or you get twisted up because you think that effort doesn't have any place in the gospel. <laughs> I'm not going to do a lot of qualification here because I think we've addressed this point a, a fair amount, in, especially in this, this series on Galatians. What I will say is this. Grace-motivated, spirit-empowered effort is mandatory for growth and fruitfulness in the Christian life. Grace-motivated, spirit-empowered effort is mandatory. It's not optional if we are going to grow and bear fruit in the Christian life. So what type of effort leads to a deeper experience of life in the Spirit? What are the habits that help us stay in step with the Spirit? We're talking here about daily practices and routines that orient us toward a greater awareness of the Spirit's presence and activity in us. I've been thinking a lot about habits lately. If I've talked to you for any length of time over the last few months, I've, there's a good chance I've talked about habits, and, and if I did, I probably referenced a book called Atomic Habits, which I would highly recommend. It's been very uh, helpful for me. The reason that this topic and this book in particular have been so significant for me is that I am not a naturally disciplined person. That's, sometimes people are surprised by that. I guess I give off an air of being more disciplined than I am. If you want the truth, go talk to my wife, Sarah. She'll give you, she'll tell you. At least once a year we do um, we do like a kind of a dietary reset, like the Whole30. You know, if you're familiar with the Whole30, like you cut out 
a certain, certain things from your diet, sugar and grain and, and dairy and alcohol. You cut everything out for 30 days, no compromise, no cheating. For me, it's typically like a whole 10. <laughs> Maybe like the partial 15. The reality is I need systems and structures in my life that push my habits toward the things that I value most. The truth is our habits are a reflection of the things that we value most. Go home and think about that. If we're going to grow in our daily awareness and experience of God's spirit in our lives, we have to cultivate habits that regularly reorient us to the presence and the power of the spirit. And I'm aware that there are a lot of good habits and disciplines that we could talk about here. Reading the word, prayer, being in community and fellowship with other people. All of those things are essential and those are habits that we should be cultivating. But I'm also aware that it's possible to do all of those things without a heart orientation that says, Jesus, I want more of you. I want to experience more of your life and your power and your peace. I'm willing to put put to death these things. I want to get rid of these things in my life so that I can have more of you. And friends, my prayer and my hope this morning is that the Spirit of God would kindle in us that desire. Because the reality is if the Spirit is in you, if you've trusted in Christ and you've come into a relationship with him, you want that. Even if you don't feel it right now, even if you're not living in it, at your core, there's something in you that says, yes, I want more of Jesus. It's what we've been created for. It's the only thing that will satisfy us, and it's the only thing that will produce in us the fullness of life that Jesus offers to us. Before we close, I want to share with you one practical tool. I told you I wanted to make this practical. It's a tool I've been using over the last few months as I've been meditating on this passage, and it's helped me to start my day from from the first moments that I wake up with the greater orientation and awareness of the, the Spirit. It came out of meditating on this passage and really trying to think about habits that would help me in my daily life, to orient myself daily to to the Spirit. It's based in the truth of Scripture. I believe you'll see I'm referencing Scripture here, but it's not the gospel. It's not Scripture. If it's helpful for you, praise God. If it's not, may the Spirit help you to apply these principles in some other way that's going to be helpful. If you're familiar with John Piper at all, you know of a tool that he developed for kind of how to approach Bible reading. It's an acronym called APTAT, A-P-T-A-T. You can go Google Piper APTAT if you want. This is my similar attempt at a tool to help us grow in our daily experience in walking by the Spirit. The acronym is ARLO. It's not a great acronym. I don't think it's worse than APTAT, but it is what it is. What does it mean? A, acknowledge the presence of the Spirit in you. Whether you realize it or not, if you've come into a a relationship with Jesus, the Spirit of God is in you. Request the Spirit's help. The role of the Spirit is to help us to experience all that Jesus has for us and has made available to us. Listen for the Spirit's leading. The Spirit wants to lead you. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
And then when the Spirit leads you, obey. Simple. How am I using this in my day-to-day life? That book I referenced, Atomic Habits, it talks about the idea of habit stacking. It's the idea that of taking a habit that's already firmly fixed in your routine and then taking a new habit that you want to build and attaching it to that thing that's already part of your daily routine. So for me, the first thing that I do when I wake up in the morning is I take a shower. Every morning, I'm perfectly disciplined in that habit. So when I turn on the shower, I've started thinking this way. When I turn on the shower, I'm going to Arlo. I'm going to acknowledge... The presence of the Spirit, Spirit of God, thank you that you are in me. Thank you that you dwell in me. Thank you that you always are with me and you never leave me. And then I request the Spirit's help. Would you help me today? Would you help me to move into deeper relationship with Jesus? Would you help me to put to death the sin that remains in me? Would you help me to listen for your leading and your direction? I acknowledge and I request. It takes one minute. And if I forget to do it, I've been doing it for now for about six weeks or so, six to seven weeks. If I forget it now because it started to become a habit, most of the time, as soon as I get out of the shower and I start getting dressed, that's my next habit, I remember, oh, I didn't, I didn't do that as I'm getting dressed. Spirit of God, thank you that you're with me. Thank you that you're, you dwell in me. Thank you that you give me power. Please help me today to follow Jesus. And now, now that I've started my day with an orientation to the Spirit and an expectation that the Spirit will actually, is in me and will direct me, as often as I think about it through the day, I just turn in my mind, Spirit of God, I'm open to your direction. I listen. I'm open to how you would lead me. Would you lead me today? Would you redirect me as you see fit? And I've been surprised, church, I'll tell you, This is not my regular experience, but in the six weeks I've been doing this, I have stories to tell you of how the Spirit has redirected me. Not just for my good, but for the good of other people. And sometimes it's weird. It's like a weird thought will come to your head, and it's like, that seems weird. I mean, I'm not talking about doing something that, like, is... It's crazy or like against scripture. I'm just saying, like I was planning to run this errand over here and the spirit said, no, go do this instead. So I went and did this instead. And then after I did that, I felt like there was something inside of me that said, okay, now go back and do that. And I went back and did that. And as I'm walking into the store that I was planning to go, I run into a friend that I haven't seen in a long time, someone who used to be a partner here at Brand New Wine Grace, who's been struggling for a long time and got into a conversation with him about how he's doing, got to pray for him. As we build this habit, it, it, it changes how we think. And it's not something that changes overnight. It doesn't happen but in, in one step. It's the cumulative effect. The cumulative effect of putting into practice grace-motivated, spirit-empowered effort that orients us to the leading and the direction of the Spirit. So if that's helpful for you, I hope that it is. If it's not, like I said, may the Spirit cause to to come to effect or bring to mind other applications, the reality is we all need to be moving more towards an orientation to Jesus. We need this in our lives. So may God help us to experience more of what Jesus has for us as we learn to move in step with the Spirit. Kenny's going to come up.